Well, let's forget about the review and let's get into the verses. <laughs> what Jesus is going to do now, he's going to uh, reveal how he's going to be delivered to execution. So we'll pick up at verse 21. Look what he says. But behold, the hand of the betrayer is with me on the table. In other words, one of his own sitting there eating uh, the Passover meal will betray him into the hands of the authorities. They will uh, turn on him. Now, I believe that for Luke's readers, this is a wake-up call. In other words, they're reading this story 40 years after it's happened. And uh, this is saying that you can eat at the Lord's table one day and turn against him the and it's a wake-up call for us that are reading this 2,000 years later. Just because you go to church and eat at the Lord's table doesn't mean that one day you might betray him. And so it is a warning. This is issued, basically, Luke includes it in here, as a, uh, as a warning to us. Now, how Jesus knows that there's one at the table who will betray him, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us that. Does he know it because it's prophesied in the Old Testament? Does he know it because the Spirit's revealed it to him? Uh, Luke just doesn't tell us anything about how Jesus knows this. So any answer that we give is speculation. Well, people say, well, Jesus was God. Obviously, he knew that. But Luke doesn't necessarily want us to think that way. Okay. So now look at verse 22. He says this, And truly, the Son of Man goes, means he's going to go to his death, as it has been determined. All of this is in God's plan. God predetermined this. He spoke about his death and revealed this to the prophets. And then he says this in verse 22, but, even though it was predetermined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, even though God predetermined that Jesus was to die, the one who betrays him is going to be judged for the betrayal. He's culpable for his actions. And we're all forgetting. And we're too low anyway. I have to hold it up with my lip. Turn it up a little bit. A little bit more. There you go. So, uh, the one who betrays him even though it was predetermined by God, is going to be held responsible for his actions. And then in verse 23, it says this, And so they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now this must have been a very humiliating thing, uh, because what we're going we're getting out, and I don't know what's happening here. But what's happening in this situation is uh, we know from other passages, they say, is it I? Remember that whole section? Is it I, Lord? Will I be the one who does it? So it's a very humiliating situation, thinking that one of them at the table is going to betray Jesus, and they're wondering whether it is one of them. Then something happens that's very ironical. When you look at verse 24... And they, I think they, and each one concluded, hey, it's, it's not me. I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I'm not going to be the one that betrays. But in verse 24, there's a switch in the conversation. And look what happens. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which one of them should be considered 
the greatest. Now think about that. In verse 22, they were saying, which one of them would be the worst? Will I be the one that betrays him? Will it be in me, Lord? But in verse 24, so if you said 23 is talking about you know, being humbled, verse 24 is filled with pride. Now they began to dispute among themselves as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Uh, they began to say, well, I'm really the best apostle that Jesus ever had. Another one said, no, I am. See how that switches between 23 and 24? Notice it says there was a dispute among them. This went on for some time. It went on for a period of probably 10 to 15 minutes. They began to argue amongst themselves. Did you ever do that? You get in an argument about one thing and suddenly the whole conversation switches. You don't even know how you got there. Well, they go from being humbled to being filled with pride and now they each think that they are the greatest leader. So Jesus breaks in in verse 25 and he says, well, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. In other words, uh, they rule with an iron hand. Their great ones rule with an iron hand. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. And uh, he says they use their power in order to seek status. The status of being a benefactor, which is very important. Uh, this was standard operating procedure in the Roman world. Jesus says in verse 26, But not so among you. In other words, you are leaders, and you are going to be great in God's kingdom, but you're not to mimic the leadership of the world. You're not to rule the way the world rules. Now, how did the world rule? How were the how did people rule? Well, he said they ruled with an iron hand and they did it for status. They would like to be called benefactors. The elites in the Roman Empire, these are the top of the echelon, the, the cream of the cream in the Roman Empire, uh, would donate their time and their money and their services to various projects, public works, the arts, and they would do that, and in return, they were looked upon as great people. And they became known as benefactors. So what they would do is, uh, and we have benefactors today, don't we? Uh, uh, Joe and Jay were going to go to the opera last night. If you get the program at the opera, you'll see people who donated 5000 10000 different amounts of money. And these are the benefactors uh, to the arts. Now, in turn, what happens, what happens in our society as well, is that benefactors are then given positions of leadership in society. That's how it happens. In other words, you're a benefactor, in this case, in order to gain status. And they were then given positions of leadership, and they were the wealthy people in society. Now, the wealthy people, the elites in Roman society, never worked. Never worked a day. Ever. Not one. They are like the most we the wealthiest people in America. Now, I'm not talking about people that have millions. I'm talking about people that have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions. Who live up in Scarsboro, New York. And all they do is they go out and they eat lunch at the club with their friends, and then in the evenings they go to big parties. They never work. 
other people work for them and make them money. And in this case, it is the peasants who work. And the peasants are required to work more and more and more and produce more and more and more so the elites have more and more and more. And to make sure they do, the elites rule with an iron hand. They lord it over the people. And that's what Jesus says. That's not how it is to be with you as leaders in the Christian community. Now, King Herod was an example of such a person. King Herod, the king of the Jews, got on the good side of the emperor Augustus and was named king, and he went into a whole series of building projects and public works, and he became the benefactor. And he gained more power and more power, and he ruled with an iron hand, and he would uh, subscribe people into service, peasants into service, without getting much and they would not get much pay. But this is not how we're to act. And so then Jesus says at the end of verse 26, on the contrary, look what he says, on the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, a person who has no status. The great among you should not be seeking status. And he who governs as he who serves. A person who serves, a servant, has no status. So Jesus recognizes that there will be leaders within the Christian movement. There will be people who are greater than others in the Christian movement. But he says, when you're to do it, you're to do it not for status. You're to do it without expecting anything in return. Now look at verse 27. Or who is the greater? Now, Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. I want to ask you, in the world's opinion, he's saying, who is greater? He who reclines at the table or the person who serves, who serves the food? And the answer is, he who reclines at the table. The one who reclines at the table is a person of status. The one who brings in the food is a person of no status. So in the world system, the one who reclines is greater, the servant is less. Yet, Jesus says at the end of verse 27, I am among you as one who serves. So therefore, the world is not to be our model for leadership. Jesus is to be our model for leadership. So we are to lead by service without self-promotion, without seeking status, without making selfish demands on other people. So Jesus recognizes the need for leaders, but he, he wants us to be different kind of leaders. Okay? So uh, we shouldn't expect people to wave on us. Those of us who stand up here with mics that don't work <laughs> shouldn't expect people to wait on us. People that God has allowed to get into some position of leadership or authority shouldn't expect others to wait on us. We should be waiting on others. That's the way it is. We shouldn't want people to say, doctor this and doctor that and get it to front of the line here and do that. When we do that, we're acting exactly like the world. Like we deserve this 
and everybody else is created to serve us. So that's not how we're to act. We're to act different from the world. Now at this point what happens is Judas Iscariot leaves. We know that from the other passages in the other Gospels. It says Judas went out and the disciples thought Judas, since he had the purse, was going out to help some poor people in the community. Uh, that wasn't why he was going, but that's what the disciples think. Okay? Because during Passover, it was a time of giving. And since Judas was the treasurer, he went out and the disciples thought he was going to go out and help some poor people. So now what happens is that Jesus speaks to the remaining 11 people at the table. Now watch what he says. Look at verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. You're the ones who have gone with me through thick and thin, you know, uh, good times and bad times. Verse 29. And I bestow upon you, you 11, a kingdom. Look at that. This is why the kingdom is so important. Watch this verse. I bestow upon you, verse 29, a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me. Wait, what's this? God has a kingdom. The Father has a kingdom. He bestowed on Jesus a kingdom. Jesus is the king. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Verse 29 says, and just as the Father has bestowed a kingdom on me, guess what I've done? I have bestowed a kingdom upon you. That means he's giving them authority to operate. Probably when he goes, they're going to be operating in his absence. If he bestows authority on them, this is called delegated authority. It's not that they grab the bull by the horns and said, I'm in charge here. So, and it's a shared authority. If I would ask one of my students to uh, go and do something, for me and uh, give him authority to do that, go in my office, use my office key, rummage through my files, uh, that is, I could be doing it. He's doing it on my behalf. There's sort of a shared authority. He's doing something for me. So when Jesus gives them, confers upon them a kingdom, he is basically asking them to serve him in this kingdom. And they are to serve, if he gives them authority in the kingdom, that means they're the rulers, they're the leaders. But they are to serve not like the world serves, modeling them, their leadership after the world, but they are to model it after Jesus. So, he's going to leave, and he's going to leave them in charge. But all of that points toward a future kingdom. The kingdom when it comes in its fullness. Look at verse 30. He says this. I bestowed upon you a kingdom as my father has bestowed one upon me. That you may eat at my table in my kingdom. Do you see that? This goes back to that verses 16 and 18 where he says that he will not eat the Passover meal until the kingdom arrives in the future. He says that they're going to eat with him in the future kingdom at his table. Now that's a guarantee, isn't it? Look at that. You will eat with me, or I will bestow upon you a kingdom that you may eat and drink 
at my table in my kingdom. Do you see that? Now, if I said in verse 25, God has a, in verse 29, God has a kingdom. Jesus says in verse 29, I bestow upon you a kingdom. God has a kingdom. You have a kingdom. And then in verse 30, Jesus says, I have a kingdom. That's not three kingdoms. They're just one kingdom. But God bestows upon Jesus. Jesus bestows upon us. And when the kingdom arrives in its fullness, we're all going to sit down at the Messianic banquet or the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we're going to eat and we're going to drink with Jesus. And he promises that to his disciples. And this is a guarantee. And he says, and not only that, he says, you will sit on thrones. That's a position of rulership, isn't it? Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, when the kingdom arrives in its fullness, God is going to, Jesus is going to give administration to the apostles, and they're going to be sitting on thrones, and they're going to be ruling, and they're going to be judging. Now, between now and then, that doesn't mean that this is going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. In fact, he said, you've been with me through thick and thin. And because you've been with me through thick and thin, I will bestow upon you a kingdom, and I guarantee you, You'll be ruling in the consummated kingdom in Israel. But it's not going to be easy between then and now. Now look at verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is there's an exclamation point after, in verse 21, uh, 31, the word Simon. Do you see that? We're going to have to get this fixed, aren't we, huh? <laughs> Look, Simon, Simon! Notice the exclamation point. Simon! Now, this verse is uh, probably one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Because he says, Satan has ask for you that he may sift you as wheat. But there's a problem here when we read it like that. Do you see the word for you? Satan has asked for you. And we think that refers to Simon, don't we? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But that's a plural pronoun. So it says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift all of you like wheat. Not just Simon that he's going to sift. His goal is to sift every one of them as wheat. That's his desire. See? Now, since that's what this means, why does Jesus then say, Simon, Simon? Well, you have two explanations. Either Simon's still running his mouth, and he's having to get Simon's attention to Simon. <coughs> Simon! Sounds like Alan and the chipmunks, doesn't it? Because <laughs> the chipmunk just keep running, keeps running his mouth, and so... Simon! Simon! Or it could be that Satan is going to sift Simon first. 
the first one to get sifted is Simon, but his goal is to sift every one of us in this room. See? And I think that's probably what the situation is. And then he says to this, and I think that why I think that is because in verse 32 he says, I have prayed for you, and that's a singular pronoun, which means he's praying for Simon particularly. So Simon's probably going to be the first one that gets sifted. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So, we have this sifting process that Satan's going to perform, starting with Simon. He wants to sift every one of us. Sift like wheat. Now, what does that mean to sift like wheat? Well, you know, that's when they would throw the wheat up in the air and the wheat would be separate, separated from the chaff. You know that picture? And uh, the chaff is that which is no good, and the wheat is that which is good, and Satan wants to put us through trials, and he wants to expose us as fake Christians. He wants to put us through the test so that we'll deny Christ. And he can say, ha, you call that one of your disciples? Just like he did Job. Remember when he did that with Job? Satan went before God, and he said, Oh, yeah, Job serves you as long as everything's going good. Put him through a test, you'll see how he serves you. He'll curse you so quick. He'll curse you before you can blink your eye. And so God said, well, sift him. But Job passes the test, proving that he is the real McCoy. And Jesus says that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to put you through a test like he's done Jane this week. And... So that you'll curse God. Say, well, if there's a really a God, why has he allowed me to go through this? And just curse God, denounce God. But guess what? When you're going through a test, remember something. Jesus says in verse 32, I'm interceding for you. And that's what he's doing right now. He's in heaven as a great intercessor, and he's praying for us. And we'll get through that test. And, we will, and when we get through that test, look what happens. He says, and when you return, when you emerge from that test, you will strengthen your brethren. When you go through a test, guess what you can do when you get through that test? You'll be able to help others who go through a similar test in the future. You'll be able to strengthen them and say, look, I went through it, and you can go through it too. Got it? So there's a reason we go through tests. It proves that we're the real McCoy, and then it prepares us to minister to other people. It's very important, I think. Now look at verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now why wouldn't he just say, thank you, Lord? I'm glad that if I go through a test that you're going to be there praying for me. Why didn't he do that? Because he signed him. That's why. That's how Simon talked. <laughs> he starts bragging on, don't worry about me, I'll go to prison and death. Uh, probably a concept that he picked up from chapter 21 last week where Jesus said they will turn you over, they will arrest you and people will hate you and you'll die and all this. Probably he remembered that and he said, I'll die for you, Lord. You know, I'll die for you. Uh, so he just pipes up, that's how Simon is. Uh, verse 34, look what happens. By the way, when Simon says that, do you think he says it loud? You think he says, oh, Lord, I'll die for you. Or maybe he's sobered. Maybe when Jesus says, you know, you're going to get sifted, but I'll pray. Maybe he says, 
Maybe he says it. Maybe it's sober, Simon. Maybe he says, Lord, I'll go to prison for you. I'm willing to die for you. Think Simon said it that way? Or do you think he said it loud? Loud because that's how Simon is. He's not he's not reflective like that. I just thought I would throw that out. Try to trick you here. Okay, now look at this. Verse 34. Then Jesus said, I tell you, Peter. Now he calls him Peter. It goes from Simon to uh, the name that Jesus gave him. Now I tell you, Rock. <laughs> hey, Rocky, let me tell you something. Now I tell you, Peter. The rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times, deny three times that you know me. The rooster will not crow this day before you will three times, deny me three times that you do not know me. Now, the interesting words there are this day. You see that? He says that not only will you be sifted, not only will you not go to prison for me, not only will you not die for me, but uh, you will deny me soon. Let me tell you how soon, before the day is out. That's how soon you'll deny me. Now, Peter is so sure that he could stand up against anything, and yet before the day's out, he will deny Jesus in order to save his own skin. And he will back down when a little 13-year-old girl says, Aren't you one of his disciples? It's not because a soldier comes up to him with a sword. Uh, so... Jesus says, you know, this denial can happen just like that. So don't think that you're going to stand because when you think you stand, you may end up what? You may end up falling. And it can happen before you think. So then Jesus gives these instructions. Look at verse 35. Now he speaks to the whole group. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? That means back in Acts and in Luke 9. Remember when I said, he sent them out two by two? He said, did you lack anything when you didn't take anything? They said, nothing. And that's true. Then he said to them, but now, he who has a money bag, let him take it. Likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Now, the important words there are the words, but now. Here's how things were before. When you went out, you didn't have to worry about anything because people would show you hospitality. They took you into their house. They took care of you. That was before. But now, instead of hospitality, you will experience hostility. Okay? Now listen carefully at this point. We can get this mic working enough for you to hear this. Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. Now what do I mean when I say he's speaking metaphorically? That means what he's saying here is not to be taken literally. He's not literally telling them to get a knapsack. He's not literally. He's not literally telling them to get a knapsack. He's not literally telling them to sell their coat. Because that's what he says there, doesn't he? He says, uh, if you don't have a sword, sell your garment and buy one. He's not telling them to sell their clothes or to sell their coat in order to buy a sword. First of all, it's late at night. <laughs> There's no way you can go out and buy a sword late at night at this point. And, uh, or buy a knapsack. He's just using graphic language 
to drive home a point that you can't depend on a warm welcome anymore. Instead, you have to expect violence. That's all he's saying. It would be like me saying this. Uh, two years ago, uh, you know, I put all my money in so-and-so. Uh, but now it's time to put it in, under my blanket or under my, under my uh, mattress or to, or to put it in a can in the backyard. I don't literally mean put it in a can in the backyard, do I? Do I mean uh, put it under the mattress? No, I just mean, hey, now's the time to just be careful because the times now are not like they were then. See? He's not literally talking about doing this. He's trying to make a contrast. How do I know this? Well, I know this because Christians didn't start carrying knapsack for the next 300 years. It didn't become known as the knapsack movement. In other words, they didn't do this. And uh, they didn't go out and buy swords at all. Uh, in fact, Peter does use a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Jesus do? To put it away. <laughs> See, if he wanted him really to use the sword, he wouldn't have told him to put it away. He said, everybody, get your swords! So he's simply speaking uh, in a symbolic way. He's saying, before, things were pretty good compared to the way they're going to be. So just get prepared. Uh, but never do we know of Christians literally throughout church history, except during the Crusades, actually brandishing swords in order to defend themselves. So, he says things are going to get bad. Things are going to change. Now, he gives us the reason why things are changing. Look at verse 37. For I say to you, here's the reason, because I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. Well, what was written? Here it is. That he was numbered among the transgressions. I still have to die. And when I die, things are going to change. For the things concerning me have an end. In other words, I'm going to die, and uh, at that point, I'm not going to be around anymore, so you need to be expecting some hostility from that point on. Uh, the phrase, he was numbered among the transgressors, is found in Isaiah 53. Now look at verse 38. And they said, this is great, Lord, look, here are two swords. They take it literally. They take it literally. Lord, look, here are two swords. So I'm convinced that they still don't get it. See? They don't, under, they don't see that he's speaking metaphorically. So look what he said to them. It is enough, which is actually, in the Greek, a side ex, uh, exasperation. He's saying, enough! Enough already! They're not getting it. He's not talking about taking up a sword to protect yourself. They've missed the point entirely. Jesus is not talking about weapons that we're to yield or that we are to that we're to use uh, to defend the Christian cause. So when Peter does use the sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, what does Jesus do? He kills the man. 
that he didn't want him to use that sword. If he wanted him to use the sword, he would have let him continue to cut off the other ear. But he doesn't do that, you see. It's because our weapons are not carnal. Now remember what Jesus said originally. We're not to rule like the Gentiles who lord it over them. You don't do what I say, I'll get out the whip. I'll cut your head off with a sword. Our weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. I think Roger quoted that in a recent talk I heard him give. To the pulling down of strongholds. See, God is our weapon. When Peter's going to be sifted like wheat, what's the weapon that will defeat Satan? Jesus' prayer. Not a sword. So they're still not getting it. Jesus says, enough already. You're missing the point entirely, you see. So I'm convinced that from a human standpoint, Jesus must be absolutely disappointed at this point. Uh, he has Judas, who's gone out, and is right now, as he's speaking, on the way to the high priest to take the high priest and the soldiers to the place where Jesus will spend the night, the Mount of Olives. Because every night Jesus goes out on the Mount of Olives. We saw that last week. Every night he goes out on the Mount of Olives after he teaches in the temple. And his disciples... The other 11 just don't get it. And so the sifting is already beginning. And so then we see in verse 39 it says, And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. Judas knows exactly where he's going, and he will lead the crowd there. And the others, well, Peter and James, and you'll have John go with him into the inner sanctum of that garden. And while he prays, using that spiritual weapon, uh, they will sleep. And the sifting begins. And uh, that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even in the midst of uh, the difficulties of the microphone. May we, have under may we grasp the lesson. Uh, that we are not to be like other people when it comes to ruling. We lead by service. We lead not seeking status. We don't think more of ourselves than we ought. We should be like table waiters. We should be happy to do that, not expecting a tip, not expecting a thank you, uh, because we want people to see your nature, for you have given to us everything. You even bestow your blessings on the wicked who never say thank you, who never give you the credit that you deserve, and you don't expect anything back in return. You do it simply because you love us. And so, Lord, help us to serve the way you do. Allow Jesus to be our model of leadership and not the world. In his name we pray. Amen.